Mark chapter 3. Take your copy of God's Word and find your way to the last paragraph in Mark chapter 3. I'm titled this sermon, Confusion and Clarity About the Christ and the Christian. We've come to a place in Mark where he begins to, in his literary style, roll up his sleeves and start being direct about the intention of this gospel. He wants to give clear identifiers, a clear way to understand who Jesus is and was and who he always will be, as well as who the true disciples are, who true followers are. Mark serves as a, as a litmus test to make sure we understand the proper identity of Jesus and the proper identity of his followers. Let me read this paragraph for you, and then we'll dive in together. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that, that he could not even eat a meal When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he said to them, answering, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's called the trilemma of Christianity, not a dilemma or a die to dilemma, the trilemma of Christianity. You, you may know it, though you might not know what it's called. In his book, Lectures on the Evidences of Christianity in 1846, Mark Hopkins proposed what has now come to be famously referred to as the trilemma of Christianity. Listen to what he said, quote, either Christ deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. 
There's no getting around this trilemma. It is inexorable. A century later, C.S. Lewis, who you may attribute this to more um, familiarly, uh, he said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with one who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me, Lewis says, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. One of the latest, more popular iterations of this trilemma is he's mad, bad, or God. It's interesting that this is not a new argument. This is not a new trilemma. These are not new questions. They were asked not only about Jesus, they were asked of Jesus in his life and during his ministry. And the text before us raises, I think, the two most important questions that anyone could ask and that everyone must answer. And that is this, who is Christ and what really is a Christian? Now I wonder if I were to give you all a sheet of paper and you were to have two or three minutes and you were to bullet point who is Christ and who is a Christian, what are the identifying features and the identifiers the marks of the true Christ and a true Christian? I wonder what you would bullet point Underneath those questions. This text is determinative. Let me say it as simply as, as I think Jesus lays it out. This text and what you do with those two questions and those answers determines your eternal destiny. It's that important and that significant. This may be the most important sermon. Let's put it in the Bible. This may be the most important text you have ever laid your eyes on in your life that would determine your eternal destiny. Let's break it down by looking at, at it this way. Recognizing the identities of the Christ and the Christian. Recognizing the identity, identities of the Christ and the Christian. We'll begin by recognizing the identity of Jesus. This is verses 20 through 30. And uh, we're going to ask three questions of the text that the text raises. And we're going to let Mark, through his exposition of this, this event in Jesus' life, answer them for us. First question is this, recognize, and under recognizing the identity of Jesus. Is he crazy? 
Is Jesus a madman? Is he lunatic? Is he nuts? Has he lost his mind and lost his senses? That's exactly the question that's being raised here. Verse 20. And he came home and the crowd gathered to such an extent that he couldn't even eat, couldn't have a meal. Again, Mark informs us that Jesus has not only drawn a crowd, but the crowd becomes an obstacle to his ministry. We think of modern preachers who love the crowds. Jesus, when he drew a crowd, the crowd actually hindered his ministry oftentimes. He's coming home. It's a reference probably to Peter's house in Capernaum where Jesus so often ministered, where he lived. Again, let me remind you what we said in the very beginning that we have these flannel graph ideas that Jesus called these 12 men and went on a three-year camping trip. And, and, and they just kind of were nomads. It wasn't the case. Most of their time, they lived and stayed in the north part of the shore of Galilee, of Lake Galilee in Capernaum. And we know that because it says he came home. Um, Looking back at chapter 2, verse 1, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was home. Jesus finds himself in a situation where it's so crowded, people are pushing into the door, and he can't even have time to eat. Verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to seize him, to arrest him, to take custody of him. Why? Because they were telling each other, they were saying, they were announcing, he, he's lost his senses. Here we find what is the first slice, and I need to tell you just a little literary device that Mark loves to use. We're going to see this again and again. Theologians and scholars call it, are you ready for this? A Markan sandwich. Mark, from that's, they're making a, an adjective out of it. Mark, Mark's sandwich, a Markin sandwich. And what that is, is really simple. It's called ABA, if you want to be technical. He begins talking about something or a scene or a certain group of people. Then he does something else. And then he comes back to those same group of people. It's called a Markin sandwich. We'll see it. He uses that literary device over and over and over by using both uh, 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 stories with one sandwiched in between the two, he makes a completely new and fortified point. Well, this is the first slice of bread in Mark's sandwich here, the first sandwich. And the first slice deals with his families, the, his family, those who were close to him, those who were his own people, literally his kinsmen, probably brothers, maybe cousins, uncles, aunts. He opens up with this group of people who are after him. His own people. These are friends, close family relations. And by the way, the last slice of bread will be he ends with talking about his mother and his brothers at the end. So you see he does both and puts a story right between. Most of Jesus' interactions with his family in the Gospels are negative.
They didn't understand him. Mary and Joseph certainly had some understanding of him, but you can see Mary, remember at the wedding in Cana, that didn't end so well. And here you have his family trying to press on him and making an incredible accusation. It says they were trying to lay hold of him. Mark uses the same Greek word six times in the book of Mark to describe arresting someone. They wanted to arrest him, take seizure of him. Why? Because they said he's lost his mind. As the ESV says, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's making the point that proximity to Jesus, his literal blood relations, doesn't guarantee or substitute for genuine faith and following. I'm sure, by the way, many of you, like me, have members of your family who do not believe in Jesus. They haven't embraced the gospel. (laughs) Take courage. So did Jesus. How could the people who grew up with Jesus, who knew him best, saw him most, not believe? Well, it's not hard to speculate. Can you imagine growing up with a perfect brother? Can you imagine growing up with a favored mother? I mean, can you have a a little grace for Joseph and Mary? An angel shows up and tells them, this is the Messiah. Wouldn't you probably have a favorite son? Every argument that was ever settled, he was right. Everything he ever said, he was right. And now he's starting to tell people that he's the Messiah. And his brothers, especially, his close relatives come and say, so sorry, we're just gonna take him away. He's lost his mind. Just a little aside, you know, there's something about this that's kind of sweet and sentimental and gives hope. If you, like me, have family members who do not believe in Jesus, you're in good company. As I said, Jesus did as well. But think of this. After the resurrection and ascension, we find out that these brothers and sisters and his mom are in the upper room worshiping him as God in Acts 1.14. Don't ever give up on your family. Don't ever stop praying for them. Don't ever stop presenting to them who Jesus is and his hope that he offers in salvation and forgiveness. So the first question they ask is, is he crazy? I mean, is he a lunatic? Second question is raised too. Is he demonic? Is Jesus demon-possessed, and does he operate by the power of Satan? This is the second question. Look at verse 22. The scribes, remember these are the, the theologians who came down from Jerusalem. If you have a map, let me solve that for you really quickly. Jerusalem is south of Galilee, but they came down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is at a higher altitude. And so everything went up to Jerusalem and you came from Jerusalem. Whether you're going north, south, east, or west, you were coming down from Jerusalem. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, these were the theological heavyweights. They've heard of him. They've now come to hear what this man says and to see what he does. 
And they enter into a debate with him among the people. So we remember, this is a room. It's crowded. This is a house. It's packed. You can't even put food on the table. And these men have elbowed their way into the room. And so they say to the crowd, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And, and the Greek probably indicates from another kind of antiphonal kind of accusation across the room, someone else said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. The theological scholars of the day come down from Jerusalem, which tells us that Jesus' ministry had attracted the eye and the ire of the most religiously educated. They've heard that Jesus is gaining a bigger and bigger following. He's undeniably casting out demons and performing miracles. And they bring two charges that are related but different. First, they say he himself was demon-possessed, actually Satan-possessed. And then they say, and he's in collusion with Satan. That's why he's able to dispel demons and tell them what to do and they obey him. First thing they say is, he's doing this with the power of Beelzebul. Now, it, this is an interesting word. It, it doesn't occur in any other Jewish literature outside of, of the New Testament. It was most likely a passing colloquialism uh, just for the head of the demons, Satan himself. That's why they say he's doing this by the ruler of the demons. In fact, Jesus makes it explicit in verse 23 because he says they were accusing him of being possessed by Satan. So they didn't say that's not who we were talking about. So he's obviously talking about Satan. And by the way, did you notice that these critics do not deny the power or the facts of Jesus' power and miracles? No one challenges whether these things happen or not. No one challenged whether these demons were cast out or not. No one challenges the way that he taught with authority. So since they can't deny it, the only thing they have left is to ascribe it to something other than God. They make an error of logic that the Lord is quick to point out when they accused him of doing this by the power of the devil. Casting out the devil's minions by the power of the devil. So it says he speaks to them in verse 22, in verse 23, in parables, in illustrations. There are three ifs and a but. Now let me give you the simple point Jesus is making with these statements and then we'll just go through them quickly. Basically this, if, if Jesus' work, if Jesus' miracles, if Jesus' ministry are utterly opposed to Satan and the demons, then how can he be empowered by Satan and demons? So he gives them a lesson on logic, verse 23. He called them to himself and began speaking to them. I like that he calls them to himself. He's already in a close-knit room. He just basically says, eye contact, boys, look up here. Listen. Commanded the respect of the room and you can hear it go silent. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Simply, if Jesus were operating by the power of Satan, why in the world would he be running around casting demons out of people? Wouldn't he be wanting to put demons into people? Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
Civil wars don't work for the betterment of a kingdom. Plain logic. On the same way, in the same way, verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If there's infighting, it will affect the health and the relations of a home. Simple logic. Kingdoms and families don't stand if they're fighting against each other. It makes no sense that Jesus is working in the power of the devil if he's doing so much to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 26, if Satan rises up against himself, if I'm possessed by Satan, he says, and I'm actually against Satan, he cannot stand, and then he just nails it, but he's finished. In other words, he has no work, has no ministry if he's against himself. Can you imagine a politician getting up and giving a speech and it says, I don't want anyone to vote for me. You say, that's silly. That's the point Jesus is making. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can he be satanic and demonic and do so much work against Satan and the demons? So that pushes him in verse 26 to the illustration, through the last illustration, to make the point in verse 27. This is the final illustration he lassos together. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. It's really interesting culturally. Unless you are away on a trip, similar to today, you're almost always home. So what robbers would do is they would rush in, bind up, the leader, the husband, the head of the home, tie him up, gag the family, rob them, and leave. Jesus uses that illustration to make his point. No one can enter a strong man, a mighty man's house, steal his property unless he ties him up first. Then, after he's tied him up, he'll plunder his house. In modern vernacular, in sports vernacular, can I just say it like this? We would say Jesus is talking smack. He is pushing back. He's saying, really? Really? He's telling the scribes that he has the power and can point to his works to show that he has credibility. And in this parable, the strong man represents Satan. His property represents the demonic forces and those human beings possessed and oppressed by them. And only someone stronger than Satan can enter his domain, tie him up, bind him, disperse his agents, liberate his captives from the kingdom of darkness. And he says, that's me. Can I give you some good news? He didn't just do it then for them. Colossians 1 verse 13, Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness. God rescued us rather from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have for redemption and the forgiveness of sin. He rescued us from that domain. Ephesians 2, you were dead, verses 1 to 4. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air was your, your master. Spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all used to. We formerly lived in the lust, the desires of our flesh indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, delivered us from that domain. I love the logic of Jesus. He is 
simple and logical. Calls them together. Pros kaleomai uses it eight times in Mark. A formal, important assertion, sit down and listen. Then verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men. Can you think of a better verse in the Bible if you understand your sin and God's grace and goodness? All sins. And then he adds, whatever disrespect or blasphemies or abuses we've ever hurled at God. All of that can be, will be forgiven. But, verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin Verse 30 is the critical understanding and linchpin of the passage because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is what we refer to as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, before we dive into this, and we need to spend a minute here, let me encourage you. If you've ever been afraid that you've committed this sin and I've talked to dozens of people who've been terrified. I think I've, I think I've done this. I can't be forgiven. If you ever think you've done it and you hope you haven't, then you haven't. It's, it's impossible. This is a permanent state of coming to the conclusion that Jesus is demonic. Not even a passing thought like I wonder if he is. It's a verdict, a conclusion that they came to. No one should ever be afraid they've committed this sin who's afraid they've committed this sin. If you don't want this sin to be accounted to your, your charge, it is willful, it is purposeful, it is defiant. Now, throughout church history, this sin has, has just been absolutely absconded from its context. This sin is talked about three times. Matthew 12, verses 30 and uh, uh, 31, 32, Luke chapter 12, Mark here in verses 20 and 28. And of the three times that this unpardonable sin is discussed by our Lord, this one may be the most graphic and, and disturbing. It's impossible to ignore that Matthew 12 and, and also Luke talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as well. And they both talk about it all three times, it's right after Jesus is accused of doing the, what he's doing by the power of the devil. Luke's account in Luke 12 is different um, because it happened at a different place. It was in Judea rather than here in Galilee. It was right after he healed a, a man who was dumb. This was after another healing and casting out a demon. Luke, Luke being a doctor would have known what he was talking about. 
And what happens after the events in Matthew and Mark and after the events in Luke are different, which tells us that he taught this lesson to multiple groups multiple times. Now, what frightens me is that also tells us that multiple groups in multiple places down in Judea and up in Galilee had accused him of being satanic. Whether these were the same people trolling him and walking around or different people and that was kind of the the rumor mill they were putting out against him, we don't know. But he did teach the same lesson multiple places in the north and in the south. So what does it mean? To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. To not be in a state of being forgiven because of that. William Hendrickson Excellent commentary on Mark. I, I, I wrote this down and I was trying to put it in my own words and I gave up and just decided I'd read you the paragraph. He says this. For penitence, they sub- to substitute hardening. For confessing, they substitute plotting. Thus, by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness, these men doom themselves Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become so hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, nor even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, He now places himself on the road that leads to perdition, to hell. This blasphemy, by the way, the Greek language indicates is not something you do once. It's a pattern of life. And maybe the best way to understand this is by way of example. Peter. Peter denied Christ at the most significant point in the Savior's earthly life. Denied him three times. At the same time, Judas turned Jesus over to the authorities and denied Christ in a completely different way. text calls Judas the son of hell, the son of perdition. And we find at the end of John, Jesus says to Peter three times, do you love me? He says, yes, then be a pastor, shepherd my sheep. What's the difference? Daryl Box says this, it might be better to speak of denial of nerve versus denial of heart. I like that. Blasphemers have uh, uh, reached a verdict. Their decision appears to be uh, irrevocable. They they don't want to go back on it. This is who they believe Jesus to be. They don't want to make any other decisions. If there's any sign of repentance in the soul, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is still working. If you're afraid that you don't want to have committed this sin, it's impossible to have committed this sin. But it is a serious sin. Four decades later, the writer of the book of Hebrews would say in chapter two, verses three and four, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. In other words, if you've seen everything that Jesus did, heard everything Jesus said, ultimately deny or push back on his resurrection from the dead, You've neglected a great salvation and there no longer remains any way to be saved. Hebrews chapter 6 is not as complicated a verse passage as most people think. Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 6. In the case of, listen, those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, all he's saying is you've seen and been convinced that Jesus is supernatural, special, divine, and someone like no one else. You've tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age have come. And then after all that knowledge, after all of that evidence fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again to themselves, the son of God, and put him to an open shame. What's the deal here? It is a calculated assessment and verdict and conclusion that you won't go back on that Jesus is the devil. He does things by the power of hell. So the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit is not some vague offense against God. It's a specific accusation and verdict that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good, that he is empowered by the devil rather than God. Remember Isaiah chapter five, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So they accuse him of being crazy. They accuse him of being demonic third question we have to ask is, is he Lord? Now, to grab this, I want to show you three different passages and just kind of collate them together because this will be the obvious point at the end of the passage. Is he Lord? Verse 23 says, he taught, uh, says, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. In other words, he taught with unparalleled authority. That's the the reputation that's going to follow him the rest of his, his days. No one taught like he taught. Unparalleled authority. Secondly, in verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men. Who can talk about extending forgiveness of sin? Remember chapter two, when he healed the paralytic? He forgave his sins. Only the Lord can do that. He has authority over the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He could command obedience to his words. He taught with unparalleled authority. He had authority over the forgiveness of sins and he could command obedience to his very language. So asking the question, is he Lord, is what Mark wants us to see kind of stitched through the passage. As we'll see in verse 35, the answer is obviously he is not a lunatic. He's not crazy. He is not demonic. He is Lord. That's looking at Jesus. 
secondly, we need to recognize the identity of a Christian. Recognizing the identity of a Christian. The real Christian and the false Christian, the true disciple and the false disciple are going to be on full display in the rest of Mark. So we're going to ask two questions that the text raises and let Mark answer them for us. Are real Christians, A, blood relatives? Are they his blood relatives? Now you may say, well, that's kind of a silly question. Well, it's the question that gets raised here. In verse 31, we come back to the, the, the last piece of bread, the bottom piece of bread, the other slice of the Markin sandwich. He started with those close to him, the, the family that had come to, to say, we want to take him away. He's crazy. He starts there. He gives this discussion with the Pharisees and the, and the, the um, scribes, rather. And now he comes to the end and comes back to his family. Some of his family members have been trying to grab him, seize him, arrest him, and take him away to kind of calm down. As my sons would say, take a chill pill, relax, get away from the stress. I don't know what's caused you to be this way, but you're over zealous, extreme, and you have delusions of divinity. Now, his mother and his brothers arrived. Hey, just a footnote, by the way. This is another proof against the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She obviously had relations with Joseph, her husband, that produced brothers and sisters. We'll see in Mark 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, they said, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense of him. He had brothers and sisters. Mary was not perpetual virgin well his mother and some of the brothers not sure where the sisters were come to the house and apparently have trouble getting in <laughs> we know why it's so crowded nobody can get in there so here's the plan verse 31 then his mother and his brothers arrived standing outside they sent word to him and called to him hey would you tell someone to tell someone to tell someone to tell Jesus mom and the brothers are here a crowd sitting around him verse 32 they were sitting there, they get the word, and they said to him, behold. Which, anytime you see behold in the Bible, it's like we would say what? Guess what? Hey, Jesus, guess what? Your mom's here. And your siblings, your brothers, they're outside looking for you. The idea that they were looking for him links them with those people who wanted to seize him and take him away because they thought he'd lost some marbles. And the crowd, interestingly, in, in, in a sweet deference, they's like, well, I guess I mean, his mom has access. Let's, let's, let's let him know that mom's out there. Let's cut a path part the crowd and, and get her in here because mom's important and the brothers too and then what Jesus says is incredibly unexpected <laughs> entirely unexpected so we come to the second question are they his obedient followers are Christians his blood relatives 
You would think they have the end. He answers that question more fully now in the second question. Are they his obedient followers? Answering them, verse 33, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? You can hear and feel the air leave the room. Now, Jesus loves Mary. Remember I said all of his interactions, almost all of his interactions with his family were negative. Remember the one positive we have? He's on the cross. He looks at John and he basically says, take care of mom. Just like she was your own mother. He's not heartless. He loves his mother. But here's something completely different is going on. Looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, guess what? Behold, the people sitting in this crowded room are my mother and my brothers. Did he mean that literally and physically? Obviously not. That could be disproven outside the door. What do you mean, Jesus? What, what point are you making? The whole passage climaxes in verse 35. For, this is the point, whoever does the will, obeys, does the will of God, that person, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The relationships between Jesus and his immediate family is an interesting story. Most of them are negative interactions, except that one at the cross. He corrects his mom at the wedding. He, we find out from, from uh, John that, uh, that they didn't believe in him. They didn't follow him. I'm always reminded when I think of Jesus and his relationship to the crowd about the relationship with his family of Luke chapter 11. I mentioned it a moment ago. Luke 11 and 12 is a parallel passage here. Luke eleven twenty seven 27 says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus is teaching, he's doing miracles, he's casting out demons. And this, this lady says, your mom must be so proud. And he says to her, ma'am, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Again, not to take too many shots at the Roman Catholic Church, but if there's ever a place for Jesus to extol and place his mother in a unique position, it was there and he said, she is not blessed any more than anyone who obeys my word. Only two categories of people in this world, and you find them here in verse 30. Those who follow Jesus in obedience and those who don't. You know, when we look at Jesus' relationship with his family, it's a good reminder of some of the things we talk about time to time when we say God, think about this, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He's never had a grandchild. In other words, you can't 
go to God and be accepted by him and receive his righteousness and, and wear the, the righteous clothes of Christ because of faith in who he is and what he did and that he's alive from the dead. You cannot do that because your parents did for you. No one gets in because of mom and dad or any other relation. A few years ago, <laughs> I hope I can still be pastor after I tell you this. I uh, was pulled over by a police officer because those speed limit signs bear authority. This was in another state, by the way. <clears throat> pulled over a block from the church where I was working. I knew I was going faster than I should. Can I see your license and your insurance? Yes, sir. My dad was a police officer, so I know be polite, be gracious, be courteous. As a man, don't cry. Um, And he goes back to the car and he comes back and he says, well, do you know that you were speeding? I said, yes, sir. And I was trying to get the ticket and get out of there and let him go away so he didn't know where I was pulling in. And then he says, where are you going? I said, I'm just going down the road here. <laughs> he says, where do you work? So I work at at church. I'm a pastor on staff. <laughs> I still got the ticket. Um, but something interesting happened there. He said, well, would you pray for me? I said, well, sure, I'd pray for you. And he began telling me about his, his mother who was very sick, cancer, looking at the end of her life. And he said, I just wish you would pray for me. I, I would feel better knowing that a pastor was going to God instead of me. And so I began to ask him, do you, do you know Christ? Well, I used to go to church and you, can, you know the typical story. Well, in the end, I, I was able to encourage him and say, listen, you, I would be happy to pray for you, but you have access to God through his son, the Lord Jesus. And we were just about to get into it and he got a call on the radio and, and had to leave. His idea was that someone else could make good for God for him. Whether that's your family or your friends, it's not the case. You must deal with God. So let me ask you some questions. What really attracts you to Jesus? What really attracts you to Jesus? He has this crowd. This crowd is going to start peeling away. More are going to come because they wanted what they could get out of him. They didn't see that last verse of obeying him and doing his will and glorifying him and saying no to your own desires and selfishness and putting his will on full display in your heart. What really attracts you to Jesus? Think about that. Which leads to the next question. Have you submitted to him as Lord? Whoever does the will of of God, he is my brother and my sister. We've often come back to what John said in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. This is the way you know you're a Christian. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, John says, he is a liar. The truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been completed. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. You know, we talk about lordship a lot. Do you, is he really your master? Does he really call the shots? Does your life, is your life really regulated by God's word? Many will say to me, Matthew 7, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, unrighteousness. I never knew you. Have you truly submitted to him as Lord? 92 times Jesus is referred to as Lord in the book of Acts. Only twice as Savior. You don't accept him as Savior and someday you make him Lord. You bow the knee as Lord and then he becomes your Savior. Third, do you truly understand what it means to do God's will over your own? I mean, it just says those who do the will of God, that's the brother and sister, that's the true relationship of Jesus. You cannot obey God's will unless you know his word. That's where his will is. That's where his desire is spelled out. Is he Lord? Do you submit Do you know and pursue what he wants in your life knowing, listen, that it's always going to be against what your flesh wants? And this one's kind of tackled me in the middle of this passage. Let me just ask you, have you given up on the salvation of family and friends? I I just look at how this plays out and these, these, in Acts chapter one, his brothers and sisters and mom are in the room and they're worshiping him and they're looking for his return and James, his brother, ends up writing the book of James. And uh, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. And this is not on the bullet points, but let me just say again, if you are concerned that you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you had a fleeting thought that you think Jesus is other than he is, but you don't want to conclude that, Let me encourage you, you haven't committed an unpardonable sin. There's a lot of other things to to direct your fear toward. Don't let that be one of them. What are you hoping in to bring you acceptance with God? Think you're good, good enough? Think you're wise, wise enough? The only way to test your salvation is by saying, do I believe the truth of the gospel and has it changed my life? True siblings, true relations with Jesus are those who do his will and are not recalcitrantly rebellious and stiff-arming toward it. Well, I wanna beg you, don't. If the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your heart have caused you to say, whoa, don't crowd that out of your consideration, please. 